Okay, let's go to the Word of the Lord in John chapter 12. <coughs> I can tell you that we're going to miss you um, tremendously. But it's going to be a blessing for you because you're going to have a lot of different preachers preaching and it's going to put them in a position where they, they're going to have to... Uh, do something for the Lord, you know what I'm saying? And they don't have a choice, you understand? Uh, if they're going to preach, they're going to have to get ready, right? And so I won't be here. And it gives them good experience and it helps them to grow. And it's going to bless you because you're going to get a different kind of preaching while I'm gone, all right? Praise the Lord. So I know you're going to be blessed. Amen. John chapter 12. Let's go over there. And let's look there in verse 12, John 12 and verse 12 tonight. In the word, Lord, I'm going to try to finish John chapter 12. Amen. Praise the Lord. Lord willing. A lot of verses to cover, but we're going to trust God to help us to get through it. Amen. Are you doing all right tonight? Praise God. I got two or three that are doing all right. I'm, I'm glad to hear that the two or three are doing all right. Praise the Lord. The rest of you, we pray that before we get out of church tonight, that you'll be doing all right as well. John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, that they had done these things unto him. And I'll stop the reading there, but I will uh, try to preach the whole chapter, the rest of it. Father, we come before you tonight. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your holy word. We ask God that you would inspire me to preach the word of God tonight. I pray for your supernatural anointing and strength to declare it to this house, to this people, that you might be glorified and lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the background is the time of the Passover celebration. Now we are moving just a few days from the cross and from Jesus Christ being crucified. So the shadow of the cross is being cast on everything that is taking place here. Beginning in verse 12, the Bible tells us that here he presents himself as king to Israel in a more public way than he had ever done before. We have seen him working miracles through the gospel of John with the miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead that would be the seventh sign of the seventh miracle as recorded in John. So he has had a public ministry. He has worked these signs and miracles in their midst. He has declared his word to them. But now he is going to present himself publicly to the nation of Israel as their king and as their Messiah. And so the Bible tells us the background here that he gets a donkey, the colt, the foal of an ass. In other accounts, it says it was both the mother and the colt. 
that he wrote upon. And the Bible lets us know at this point, which we call Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem. Many people call it the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. But it is really not the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. That doesn't take place until Revelation 19 when he comes in the clouds of glory riding on a white horse. I would say in a sense it's triumphal, but just for a moment. Okay? But he enters into Jerusalem. He presents himself as a king. And the Bible tells us that many people begin to gather there there as they heard that he was going to come up to Jerusalem. Verse 13 says, They took branches of palm trees. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they went and cut down palm branches out of the trees in Jerusalem. Everyone that had come there to the Feast of Passover had already brought a bundle of palm branches with them. Palm branches speak of victory. They speak of victory and strength and power. Amen. And so... They got these palm branches in their hands and they're going to celebrate the victory, the salvation, and the power of God at this time in the Passover. And the scripture says they take these branches and the Bible said they went forth to meet him. And I'm talking about literally thousands of people, seas of people are coming out to meet the king as he presents himself to Israel. And as they come with their branches to meet him, the Bible says they begin to cry out, Hosanna. Say Hosanna. Hosanna means they're saying, save us. They're crying out, save us. And it's not really a petition. It is a worship that they're giving him. They're recognizing him at this point as the Savior and the King. Although I don't think they totally understood what was happening here. But they're crying out, save us. And during this time, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 would have been sung by the nation of Israel. Those psalms were the psalms known as the Hillel Psalms. And in Psalm 118, uh, this is where they get this from. If you'll turn over there to Psalm 118 and verse 26, you will see the statement there in the Hillel Psalm. Now, the Hillel Psalms, I don't want to lose you here with what I'm saying with my words, but the Hillel Psalms were sung during the rededication of the temple by the Maccabees in 164 B.C. as they rededicated the temple and relit the menorah. Okay, you remember the background of that. Okay, so anyway, uh, Psalm 8, 118, if you'll look there, please. And verse 20, let's start at 25. This is the last of the Hillel Psalms, which would have been sung during the Passover celebration. Verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. So when they begin to sing Hosanna, they are singing Hillel, the Hillel Psalm 118. Okay? Look at it again. Verse 24. Save now. Or Hosanna. Are y'all with me? Hoshiana is the way you would say it in Hebrew. Hoshiana. Save us now. And so they are. This is the liturgy. This is the song that they're singing at this time. Right? As Jesus is riding in. So they say. Hoshiana. Save now. 
I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Who are they saying this worship to? O Lord, the one God of the Bible. Verse 26, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of what? The Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And this Psalm 118, this Psalm, Hallel Psalm, is a psalm of victory. It's a celebration of victory and power and strength over the enemies of God and His people. And so now in this psalm they are declaring that the Lord is their salvation. So when we go back to John 12, as, they, as he's riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, as I said, both the mother and the young colt, verse 13, they were taking branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, or Hoshiana, which means save us now. And just as verse 26 says, they repeat that, Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Alright, praise the Lord. Verse 14, and as I'm going through this, I'm not going to be exhaustive on this. We've preached on this many times, so just bear with me. I'm going to try to preach the whole the whole chapter, not just this one section. So he's coming into Israel and they are saying, Hoshiana, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. So now we have a public presentation of Jesus Christ to the nation that he is the King. I want you to get this, all right? He is presenting himself to them to be accepted by them as their King. And as their Savior. You understand that? Okay? And they're gathering around. Many people are gathering around. And they're celebrating. And they're praising God. And they're worshiping God. For victory and strength and power and salvation. And it's an awesome time. The Bible tells us. As we continue reading. Verse 14. And Jesus when he had found a young ass. Sat thereon. As it is written. Fear not, daughter of Sion. Behold, thy king come and sitting, sitting on an ass's colt. So a young colt that had never been ridden before, a young colt that had its mother by its side in other chapters, Jesus sets upon this colt. I don't know if you know much about a, a young donkey. If it has not been broken, it will buck you up to the heavens. Okay? I mean, you've got to be a tremendous rider to stay on a young donkey because they have tremendous force in their ability to buck you off. And so when Jesus sits upon that young colt, the Bible tells us that, notice, the colt does not buck. The, the colt does not try to get rid of him. What we have here is God sitting on the back of a colt and turning the back of a colt into his throne. And when that coat has the king sitting on its back, God sitting on its back, this dumb donkey has enough sense to know that the Creator, its Creator, is sitting on its back and refuses to buck its Creator off. I will say in some ways this donkey had more sense than humanity that was there that day. Because that donkey right there knew that God was sitting on its back 
its creator was sitting on its back and it would not buck, it would not try to throw him off. And are y'all with me today? But not only that, the Bible tells us that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. So if you go to Zechariah chapter 9, we'll see this prophecy that Zechariah gives us concerning the Messiah, how he would ride into Jerusalem that particular time, Zechariah chapter 9. We'll turn there. Instead of coming on the back of a white horse, a white charger, Zechariah says he was going to come back, come on riding on the back of a colt. So let's go to Zechariah 9. Okay, verse 9. Are you there? Now, before I read this, I need to share this with you that in Jewish thought, in Jewish mindset, they believed that Messiah would come riding on a white horse if Israel was righteous. But if Israel was unrighteous, that when he came, he would ride on the back of a donkey. So keep that in, their, in your minds, all right? Zechariah 9 9. A fulfillment of prophecy. 500 years before Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, 500 BC, we have this prophecy. Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So 500 years before Jesus rides into Jerusalem, that prophecy was written about how he would come. He wouldn't be coming riding on the back of a white horse. He'd be coming riding on, the, on a colt, the foal of an ass. Say praise the Lord. In fulfillment of prophecy. Two greatest proofs to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that this is the Word of God. Number one, fulfill prophecy. Number two, the miracles that He did. Those are the true greatest proofs that we have to prove that Jesus is the Messiah and that this Word that we preach from is the Word of God. 500 years before it ever happened, the prophet said he would come into Jerusalem that way. And then 4,000 years before that happened, before he rode in Genesis 49, is the first prophecy that shows us Messiah would be connected with a donkey. So go to Genesis 49. So we're backing up even beyond 500 years. We're going all the way 4,000 years approximately before he rides into Jerusalem. 49, you there? Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, until he whose right it is comes. The scepter will not depart from Judah. 
So we have a prophecy that Shiloh is going to come. Shiloh is going to come in the future. The king is going to come in the future. And until he, until he comes, that scepter will not depart from Judah, right? Say praise the Lord. This is a prophecy 4,000 years before he comes. Now keep reading. The Bible says, And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Unto Shiloh. Verse 11. Here we go. Binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's coat unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth, teeth white with milk. So that is a prophecy 4,000 years before he came that the king would come. Shiloh would come. He whose right it is would come. And when he comes, he would be connected to the ass and the coat, the foal of an ass. Isn't that amazing? Give God praise in the house. <laughs> so when he rides into Jerusalem, he is fulfilling the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. He is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. He's fulfilling the prophecy 4,000 years before he came that Genesis 49, 10 and 11 and 12 wrote about that he would come the king and he would be connected to an ass. Praise the Lord. Give God praise in the house. And in the passage, the, the focus is not on his humility. This is the way kings rode in Jerusalem. Kings rode on mules in Jerusalem. And so when he came riding in Jerusalem this way, they knew by prophecy that this is the way their king was going to come to them. He would be riding on, you with me so far? The coat, the foal of an ass. They should have been looking for him. And not only that, go to Daniel chapter 9. We have a prophecy as to the timing. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. As I've already told you that Jesus Christ, everything that He did, He was on a time schedule. He was on God's time schedule. So in the Passover feast, the time of Passover, He's fulfilling these prophecies, so there's a time schedule, right? As to when everything has to take place. Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24. You ready? Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Or seventy weeks are cut out. Okay? These seventy weeks are not seventy weeks of days. These are seventy weeks of years. Okay? Seventy times seven years. So it's a total of 490 years, says God through Daniel. 490 years are cut out, are determined, the Bible says. Look at it again. 70 weeks of years, and these are not days, these are years, are determined or cut out upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, 
and to anoint the most holy. Now, when does it start? When does that 490 years that's cut out by God for the people of Israel, when does it start? The next verse tells us. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. You with me? So when it starts is when the commandment or the decree goes forth to do what? To restore and to what? Build Jerusalem. When did that decree take place? Okay, there's two decrees that you got to look at, and I don't have time to get into it all of it tonight. Get the Book of Daniel series, and you'll get it, okay? If you'll get that series, you'll, I went into detail on this. There's two decrees you have to look at. One is a decree under Cyrus, 537 B.C. That decree from Cyrus was to the nation to leave Babylon, to go back home after 70 years captivity, and rebuild the temple. 537 B.C., okay? I'm not going to focus on that one tonight because that decree is in relationship to the building of the temple. Okay? 537 B.C. If I take that decree, it brings you to the baptism of Jesus Christ. But that's not going to be my focus tonight. If you want the details on that, get Daniel 9, the teaching on Daniel 9. The decree I'm going to focus on tonight is the decree that was given by Artaxerxes, 446-445 B.C., okay? Nehemiah, if you read Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, Artaxerxes gives a decree to Nehemiah, and that decree is allowing Nehemiah to go back and to rebuild the wall, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and to restore the city. As I said, Cyrus's decree in 537 B.C. was a decree allowing the Jews to go back to rebuild the temple. The decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, 445, 446-445 B.C. was specifically a decree allowing him to go back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So when you look at Daniel chapter 9, when it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, to restore and to do what? Build Jerusalem. Then say the temple. It says Jerusalem. Unto the Messiah, the Prince. You get that? So all I have to do is go back in history and I have to find that decree. When was that decree given? Okay. The time of the decree, and that is the starting point. And you can calculate from that time. 483 years, Messiah will come. Now remember I said this 490 years, 70 times 7 years. But look what the scripture says. After the decree is given, the Bible says, from that time, the Messiah, the Prince, shall be what? 7 weeks. Say 7 weeks. And three score and two weeks. So how many is seven plus 62? Let's look at it. Look at, your, look at the Bible, please, okay? 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, that's the starting point of that time frame that's cut out for Israel. The Bible says there's going to be seven weeks and three score in two weeks. So how many? 62 weeks? Three score, 62 weeks, plus seven weeks. That's 69 weeks. But the Bible says 70 weeks are cut out for Israel. You see that? So we've got a section of time here. He says 69 weeks from the, the time the decree is given to go and restore and build Jerusalem. It'll be 69 weeks. And 69 weeks, after 69 weeks, Messiah is going to come and then he will be cut off. Okay, you with me? Now you got to be looking at your Bible uh, to be with me on this, okay? So 69 weeks from the decree, 445, 446, 445 B.C., 69 weeks from that time, Messiah's coming, and then he'll be cut off. So God gives them the exact time frame of 483 years. 69 weeks equals 483 years or 173,880 days. Okay? He gave them the exact time in years and days to the day when Jesus would come the first time. Let me say it again. 69 weeks equals 483 years or 173,880 days. So God tells them from the time of the decree, that's when it starts, unto Messiah the Prince is going to be a total of 69 weeks. You got it? Let's keep reading. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going for the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. Sixty-nine weeks. He gave them the exact time frame of when the Messiah would come the first time. How long? How long from the decree till he would come? How many weeks? Sixty-nine weeks. That's how many years? That's how many days? 173,880 days. Okay? So he gave them the very date he would come. You understand? The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Okay? That troublesome time is that first section, that seven weeks. And then 62 added to that. He's letting you know after Messiah comes that the total time is 483 years or 69 weeks. The Bible tells us when He comes, He's going to be cut off. So we have the 69, with me? 69 weeks, 483 years, 173,880 days. Messiah will come, and when He comes, He'll be cut off. So we have the time determined. We have the time cut out for the people. And then we have the time after the time, the cutting off of the Messiah. Does that make sense? Praise the Lord. 
Are y'all with me? After he's cut off, the Bible says he's cut off not for himself. That means he's going to be crucified for you and me. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. The prince that shall come is the Antichrist. And the people of that prince that shall come shall destroy the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood and to the end of war desolations are determined. So 40 years after he was cut off, crucified, we have the fulfillment of that prophecy when Titus, the Roman general, went into Jerusalem and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And they are the people of the prince that shall come. So we know where the Antichrist is going to rise to power from. He's going to rise from a revived Roman Empire. Because it was the Romans 40 years after Jesus was cut off that destroyed the city. Does that make sense? Okay. Go back to John chapter 12. So we know the time frame. God, Jesus is on God's time clock. The time began 446 slash 445 B.C. when Artaxerxes gave the decree to Nehemiah to rebuild the city. From that starting point, you have 483 years, 173,880 days from that time. Messiah would come and then he would be cut off. Does that make sense? If you take that time frame, Artaxerxes, 446 to 445 B.C., and you add 483 years to it, that brings you to A.D. 31, April the 25th, on your calendar. And that brings you to His crucifixion. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus rode into Jerusalem here. He presents Himself as King. And after that, He's cut off. He fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. To the day. They should, in fact, many of them were there looking for Him to come, looking for Him to ride in. I don't know that they understood the prophecy of Daniel completely, but when He rode into Jerusalem that day, and then after was crucified, he fulfilled Daniel 9, 24 and 25 to the letter. 69 weeks, 483 years, 173,880 days to the day. That's when he was crucified. Just like the Bible says, when Messiah came, he would be cut off. But not for himself. He would die for you and me. It was the time of their visitation. It was their day. Amen. Are you with me right now? God is an awesome God. And not only that, but because it is the time of Passover, they're singing Hoshia Na, save us Lord, and they're fulfilling Psalm 118, 25 and 26. And not only that, because it's the time of Passover, Jesus is fulfilling Exodus chapter 12 as the Passover lamb. Because the very day He rides into Jerusalem, they're bringing lambs to the temple. And on their calendar, it would have been April the 10th. So the very day that He rides into Jerusalem, all these lambs are being brought in to Jerusalem and He's walking in with them or He's riding in with them. Did you catch me what I'm saying? They are set aside on the 10th. They are killed on the 14th. 
So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the 10th, their calendar. Four days later, He would be crucified. If He rides in on Sunday, you with me? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, He'll be crucified on the fourth day. Are y'all here today? Give God praise. Which means He was crucified on a Wednesday, not on a Friday. But I'm just telling you that everything, timing, Prophecy, Zechariah 9, 9, Genesis 49, Daniel chapter 9, 24 and 25. All of these prophecies are being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 12 is being fulfilled. He is the Passover lamb. And he's riding into Jerusalem on the 10th day with the rest of the lambs. And he'll be slain the same time those lambs will be slain. Because those lambs die at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus dies. The same time the high priest takes the knife and cuts the throat of the lamb in the temple. That same hour, the lamb of God is crucified on the cross. And says, it is finished. And lifts up his head and he says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he dies the exact moment that that Passover lamb is slain. And the temple is rent from top to bottom. The veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. And when God rents the, the veil of the temple from top to bottom, He's letting you know there's a new way into the Holy of Holies and it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. So everything, they're singing, they're praising the presentation of Him as a lamb and the presentation of Him as a king is all fulfillment of prophecy. I tell you today that the true greatest, true greatest proofs that we have the Word of God tonight and that Jesus is the Messiah is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy and the signs or miracles that He did. Give the Lord praise in the house. So He is presenting Himself as a king, but He's also presenting Himself as the Passover lamb at just the exact moment in time. Give the Lord praise. Now what is interesting is if you study time, physicists will tell you time is a river. And they will tell you that depending on where you are in the universe, time is different. On the moon tonight, time is beating faster than on the earth. On Jupiter, time is beating slower than on the earth. Are y'all with me right now? So depending on where you are in the universe, time is different from our time. Even GPS systems have to take into account when they pick up satellite imagery, they have to take into account the difference in time. But Jesus came in fulfillment of time to the day. Are y'all with me? He's the Lord over time. He's God over time. In fact, He is the one who created time. And the one who's writing it to Jerusalem to fulfill prophecy that was given 4,000 and also 500 years before He came. And in Daniel's prophecy, around 600 years before He came, He is fulfilling it to the letter. The time, everything is perfect. Give God praise in the house. <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway, thank the Lord. Beautiful to me. It's beautiful to me. So everybody's excited. 
They're praising Him, Hoshea and I, save us, Lord, and they're lifting up worship to Him and, and a petition to Him to save them, but they think in their mind that He's a political Messiah alone. They're looking for a political Messiah to overthrow the Roman power off of them. But they don't understand that what He has come to do is to save them, not just on a political way, but to save them spiritually. That's where they misunderstand. Say amen. The Bible says in verse 16, These things understood not His disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, and His glorification is His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That's His glorification. But it wasn't until after His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon His disciples, that the disciples really understood what was going on. I'm telling you this day, people are swept up in prophetic movements and they don't even know it. They are swept up in prophetic fulfillment and timing and they're not even touched with it. Even his own disciples, when they witness all of these events, okay, even his disciples do not understand what is he doing? Why is he riding in here? Why is he presenting himself at this time? Why, why is this happening? They don't understand that. But yet they are caught up in prophetic fulfillment and prophetic flow right there. And I'm telling you, there's times in your life you're caught up in a prophetic moment and you don't even realize you don't understand what's happening to you. You're not in touch with it. And the disciples here, they're not in touch. I tell you right now, I believe we're in the last days. And we're caught up in a prophetic fulfillment. A lot of times we don't even realize it. You understand? But everything is beaten according. Time is beaten according to God's will. And He will return a second time and fulfill His entry triumphantly, literally, in Revelation 19. The Bible tells us in verse 16, I'll read it to you again. These things understood not His disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of Him that they had done these things unto Him. They finally got a revelation of what was going on. Didn't understand it. Verse 17, The people therefore that was with Him when He called Lazarus out of the grave and raised Him from the dead, bear record. Say Amen. amen. Verse 18, For this cause the people also met Him, for that they heard that He had done this miracle. So the reason why they're there that day is because they heard that Lazarus had been raised from the dead by Him. That's why they're there. They don't understand the prophetic significance of, of why they're there, the timing that they're there, what's going on. They're just there. And all of a sudden, they're picking up palm branches and they're waving them and they're shouting, Hoshia Na, save us now. And they're fulfilling Psalm 118, 25 and 6. And Zechariah 9, 9 is being fulfilled. And Daniel 9, 25 and 26, you know, it's coming to pass. And, and uh, Genesis 49, 10 to 12, is all happening right there's conversion, right there for prophetic fulfillment. And it was the raising of Lazarus that brought him there. And they don't understand what's happening. And they're just caught up in the emotion. Woo! Every time you come to church, and there's a prophetic moment and a prophetic timing for the house, and you're caught up in, woo, praise God, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't even understand the significance. All of us, not just you, me. All of us 
have had rendezvous with Jesus Christ and didn't even, we couldn't even put our finger on the significance of that prophetic time. And this is the way they were. Amen. Verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. They said, we haven't succeeded, you see. They said, the world is going after him. We haven't prevailed. But that doesn't stop them from plotting and planning his death. Say amen. amen. Verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Now what I need to tell you is this. Is that Jesus Christ is literally presenting himself as the king and the savior to them. Now, all the details are not recorded in the Gospel of John. But after this triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, we'll call it that, he will go off to the side and he will lift up his eyes and he'll weep over Jerusalem. There's one moment they're caught up in all kinds of celebration and praise and petition, if you will. And he gets up in that mouth and he says, how often would I have gathered you as a mother gathered his chicks, but you would not. So he knew that even though that day there was a triumphant entry, they knew he would only be, he knew that he would only be a king for a day in their mind. And that the religious leaders of his day are going to take him and crucify him and reject him. He knew that. Y'all with me so far? With that in the background, the religious leaders of Jerusalem are going to reject him. He knows it. They're going to crucify him on a cross. He has presented himself as the king. Ultimately, that will be rejected. Israel is going to be rejected by him. Okay? And so, in the light of that, now we have Gentiles come on the scene. And it is showing you prophetically that after Israel rejects their Messiah and crucifies him in unbelief, then the Gentiles will be joined to him. This is a prophetic picture that during the time of Israel's rejection, there would be a Gentile church that would worship Him. And in these Greeks coming to Him, you're coming to Him. Because in the time of Israel's blindness, the Gentiles are being joined to the Messiah right now. Keep that in mind. So it's very significant what is happening here. So, here we go. At this point, he's presenting himself as king in Israel. He's, I believe, gone into the temple. Amen. Amen. And the Bible says in verse 20, there were certain Greeks among them, these are Gentiles, that came up to worship at the feast. These are proselytes. These are Gentiles who have been converted to Judaism. Okay, you with me so far? And they're going up just like the rest of the Jews, to celebrate the feast of the Passover. But within them there is a hunger 
for more than what they've got. They have practiced the faith of Israel. They are celebrating the feast along with Israel. They have converted, if you will, to Judaism, but it has left them empty. And they are looking for more. Just like many of you who are in religion at one time, but you were looking for more. And you knew on the inside of your heart there's got to be more than what I have. And you found out that that was true, that there was more than what you had. And that's why you and that's why I'm in the kingdom of God today. Because my religion that I was in did not satisfy me. And so here these Greeks come up, the Bible says. And they go to Philip, who is a Greek named disciple. Philip is a Greek name. And Philip speaks Greek. And so they find a man with a Greek name who speaks Greek that they can identify with, one of his disciples. And they tell him, we would see Jesus. And Philip takes them to Andrew. Wonder why Philip didn't just take them straight to Jesus on his own. He said, well, he said, you want to see Jesus, I better get Andrew involved. Andrew is Peter's brother. And, and Andrew knew how to bring people to Jesus Christ. He was a soul winner. He's always bringing people to Jesus. When you see Andrew, you always see Andrew winning souls. And we have these Greeks going to Philip, a Greek named disciple. And Philip says, I need some help from Andrew, the soul winner. I need help from Andrew, Peter's brother, because he knows how to lead people to Jesus Christ. He knows how to present them into the presence of God. So he said, I need somebody that's like Andrew, somebody that's a soul winner. So he goes and gets Andrew. The Bible tells us, the Greek says, we would see Jesus. If he's at the temple, if he's in the temple, of course, they can't go beyond the Gentile section of the temple. We would see Jesus. We want to see him. And so the Bible lets us know the disciples, they, these two always work in a team. They go to Jesus and they tell him, there's some Greeks here that would see you, Jesus. They want to see you. They want to meet you. You see, they're hungry for more. And Jesus just goes off on them. <laughs> he does. I don't know if they ever saw him. I don't know if he walked out of the temple, if he was in the temple. I don't know if he walked out there and saw them and let them see him. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible just says they had a request. We would see Jesus. And you would think, okay, Jesus, Jesus, you know, you got people that want to see you. Go out there and, and meet them and greet them and say, hello, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, right? And nice to meet you. You want to see me? Nice to meet you, okay? But instead, he just goes off. And he starts talking about it's a grain of wheat, lest it fall to the ground and die. It abides alone. Jesus, all you have is some Greeks here that want to see you. And you go off and talk about lest the grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. He said that for a reason. And we'll show you why. 
Look at it. Verse 20, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, therefore to Philip, which was at Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. We've got some Greeks out here who want to see you. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come. That's the first time I've heard him say that. Throughout the Gospel of John, he completely and all the time repeats himself, My hour is not yet come. And now the first time he says, My hour, are y'all with me? Is come. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's on God's time clock. It's time for the Son of Man to be crucified, dead, buried, resurrected from the dead and ascended to sit on the right hand of God. Symbolic language. It's time. For who? The Son of Man. You understand what I'm showing you here? When He rises into Jerusalem, He's the King of Israel. Are y'all here? In John chapter 11, when He raised Lazarus from the dead, He's the Son of God. Here He's calling Himself the Son of who? Man. That takes you to Daniel chapter 11, the prophecy about the Son of Man. And the Son of Man sitting on the throne of glory. So now Jesus is showing them I'm the Son of Man. That's not just going to be a king over Israel. He's letting them know He's the Son of Man. He's going to rule over the whole universe. Including Gentile nations. So He uses the Son of Man a term that lets them know His universal reign and rulership over all mankind. In the context of Gentiles coming to Him. The hour is come that the Son of Man, I believe it's His favorite title for Himself, that He would suffer and die. He would be humiliated, but He would be the one raised and set upon the throne to rule over the universe as a man. The Bible says, look at it please. Verse 24. Here we go. Verily, verily, I say unto you. And remember, this is in the context of somebody wanting to see Him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Go back and tell those Greeks, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That just is amazing to me. All they wanted to do was see him. And he goes off and he talks about a grain of wheat falling on the ground and dying and abiding alone. You know, dying, if it, it doesn't fall on the ground and die, it abides alone. Why would he say that? He's saying that for a reason. He's letting them know that for them to see him only physically would not save them. He's letting them know that they must see him as the one who will die for them. 
See, you can see Him with your natural eye and still be lost. You can study Him. You can get your Bible and you can read about Him. And you can study the Scripture. And you can see Him with your natural eye. But never really see Him. And that's what He's letting them know. You want to see me? Except I die. If I don't die, He's letting them know. If I don't die, you can never see me. He's letting them know that the only way they could ever really see Him is if He dies for their sin. If He redeems them by the blood that He sheds on the cross, that's the only way that they can see Him. That's the only way that you and I can ever see Him is if He dies for us. Because you can look at Him, Greeks, and you can see His outward body, but you can't see the life that's in Him. You can see His outward body, but you can't see the heart. You can see the outward body, but you can't see the life beneath the body. And it's going to take the death of that body to reveal the life that's in that body. It's like looking at a corn of wheat. And you can see the husk outwardly, but you can't see the heart of the wheat. You can't see the life in the grain until the grain, the corn of grain, drops into the ground, it's covered up, and it sheds the husk. And when the body is shed, then all of a sudden, out of the death of that seed, the life is seen. The life comes out of death. And He's letting them know, you can see me physically, but the only way you're ever going to really see me is if I go into that ground. My body is planted. My body is buried. It dies for you. And in that death, it will produce life for you. And you can't see that. So I'm telling you that my body has to die. And my body has to be planted in order for you to have life. It's going to take my death to save you. It's going to take my death to give you life. And you can't see that by just looking at me. You'll never, never be able to see Jesus except by His redemption, by His salvation. So I'm just telling you, they say we would see Jesus and He goes off. He tells them, the only way you can see me is if I die. And He's letting them know you have to see me that way. Everybody here today has to see Him that way. What I'm trying to tell you is that you can go to church all your life. You can study Jesus. You can hear about Jesus. You can see Him to a certain level. But until you see how He died for you in order to save you. Until you see Him that way. That in His death He will produce life. You cannot and will not be saved. I don't care how many facts you got about Him. I don't care if you were raised in church. I don't care if you've read this Bible from cover to cover. Unless you understand and get a revelation and see that it's His death that brings life to you. You cannot be saved. And not only that, but you have to die to yourself. And you have to commit yourself. And you have to be devoted to Him. 
if you're going to be saved. It's His death that saves you. But you have to join yourself to Him. Are y'all with me? Say praise the Lord. But look at it again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Verily, verily, truly, truly, get it, hear it, listen to what he's saying. He said that grain's going to have to die. <coughs> it's going to have to fall into the ground. And when it does and it dies, all of a sudden, you're going to have the blade, the stalk, and the corn. And it's going to produce the grain. And so Jesus died. About four days later, He's going to die on the cross. That's what he's telling you. Let me know. His hour. It's his hour. And he's fixing to die. He's given them a revelation for the purpose of his death. And he's letting them know that he's going to die. But he's not going to stay dead. Because when his body is placed in the heart of the earth. Three days later. The blade's coming out. He's going to rise from the dead. The blade will be seen three days later. And then for 40 days, he's going to walk upon the earth. And he'll be seen by his disciples. So that means for 40 days, the blade is going to keep growing and growing and growing. And then all of a sudden, after 40 days, he's going to ascend up into heaven. And the blade is growing taller and taller. The stock is growing taller and taller. Until it grows so tall you can't even see. He goes right up into the heavens. And then 10 days later, 50, on the day of Pentecost, the grain gets so heavy on the stalk and so mature and so ripe that it begins to fall on the earth. And the disciples receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And it started on the day of Pentecost. And the grain is still falling today. It's still falling today. <clears throat> so his death produced his life. And that life came up three days later. And 40 days it grew and grew. He went up into heaven. It, you lost sight of it. All of a sudden, 10 days after he was ascended, it got so heavy. The grain got so heavy and so mature. It began to fall out upon the earth. And people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Speaking with other tongues. And he still poured out the grain. The corn of heaven is still falling today on the earth. Verily, verily, I say unto you. The double enunciation of deity. Don't get bored by what I'm telling you. Verily, verily, or truly, truly. Not just verily, not just truly. But verily, verily, the double enunciation of deity. The power of confirmation. 
a sovereign work of God to bring change. Hebrews chapter 6. Take time to read it. I don't have time to read it tonight. But the Bible talks about God taking an oath for Himself. He binds Himself to an oath in the heavens. And when He makes that oath, takes that oath and binds Himself to an oath in the heavens, then He reveals it to the earth. He announces it in the earth. Once in the heavens to Himself. And then He announces it in the earth. You with me? Once in the heavens and then in the earth. Two times. The power of confirmation. What are you saying, Pastor? Whenever God speaks a name twice, it is a, the power of confirmation. He's letting them know, I've already said it in the heavens. And sovereignly, I'm taking over the earth. This is a sovereign move of God. He said, I'm taking over the earth. And what I said in the heavens, He said, I'm come down to the earth and I'm taking over right now sovereignly to bring what I said in the heaven. I'm bringing it to pass into the earth once in the heavens and once in the earth. He's sovereignly taking over to bring about change. He said in the days of Eli, Samuel, Samuel. Once in the heavens and once in the earth. What's he doing? He's bringing change. He said this old Eli system, this religious system under Eli, this apostate religious system. He said, I've had enough of it. So he said, I'm stepping in to bring change. Samuel, Samuel. He said, I'm coming into the earth to sovereignly take over everything. I'm going to bring change. I'm removing an old Eli system. And I'm bringing in Samuel. He said to Martha, Martha, Martha. You're, you're coming about with many things. You're busy, you're troubled, you're coming about many things. You're busy, 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 trying to work, 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 trying to serve. Martha, Martha! She said, I'm bringing change. So that it's not going to be working for your salvation. It's not, are y'all here with me right now? Yeah. He said, I'm getting ready to change the way things are done. You're not going to do it the way they did it under the Old Testament. Martha, Martha, I'm coming to this earth to bring a sovereign change so that you can sit at my feet and you can rest in the finished work of Calvary. Martha, Martha. I'm bringing the fulfillment of an old way of doing things. I'm bringing in a new covenant. And in this new covenant, you're going to set at my feet and you're going to rest in my finished work. Martha, Martha. Martha's a picture of the old covenant. He's saying, Jesus, and Martha, Martha said, but what I'm bringing is the way Mary's sitting at my feet. Learn to me, having a relationship with me. I'm bringing change, he says. I'm here sovereignly to take control. 
And when he looks at the religious leaders and he tells the religious leaders and others, he says, barely, barely. He's letting them know, I'm here to change your old religiosity. I'm here to bring change. I'm here to bring a new covenant. There's going to be a new way of doing things in this new covenant age. It is a sovereign move of God to bring change, fulfilling what He's already said in the heavens. He's coming to the earth as a sovereign, say sovereign, as a king to bring change. And these religious leaders were not willing to accept that change to their old religiosity and their old way of doing things. They did not believe in that. So He said, verily, verily, to let them know. That doesn't mean anything to you, but it took me a long time. Anytime God gets ready to do something sovereignly in the earth and He comes to take over in the earth and to bring change in the earth, He always will have a double annunciation of deity. Samuel, Samuel, Martha, Martha to the religious leaders, barely, barely, or to the Gentiles. The Greeks, to the disciples. I'm bringing change. Things are fixing to change. You're going to sit at my feet and learn of me. You're going to enter into my rest by the finished work of Calvary. And you can't see me if I don't die. You can see only the outward, but you cannot really see me eternally if I don't die for you and go into the heavens and pour out the grain back into the earth. So when they said we would see Jesus, they had no idea that He would just go off like He did. Some of you here today say, "We, I want to see Jesus. You can't see Him. You won't really see Him. His life. You can't see it unless He dies. And then that life is revealed through His death. Give God praise in the house. But except you be joined to Him and except you devote your life to Him, you can go to church all your life. You can read the Bible all your life. You can go go through the religious types and shadows all of your life. But until you get a revelation that His death is the only way that can bring life to you and that's the only way you could ever see Him, you will die in your sins. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He's letting them know the Gentiles are going to come in the kingdom. Much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. Lose what? His life. Now he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to you and me. If you love your life, you will lose it. If you live for self on this earth, you will lose it. Your life. A lot of people today, man, they're living it up without Jesus Christ. But unless you lose it, your life, Unless you, come on somebody. Hear hear what he's saying, what he's saying. 
Beautiful image. He that loveth his life shall lose it. You go through life trying to hold on to your own life. How many people today are doing that? Rejecting God. Rejecting the truth. Rejecting salvation. Living life the way they want to live it. If you will, living it up without Jesus. But there's coming a time they're going to lose their life. The only way you'll ever see Him, if you understand that through His death He brings life, but also your life and my life are required as well by way of devotion. Now here with me today. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it. Keep what? His life. See, the way you keep your life is by losing your life. The way you lose your life is by keeping it. That is a, well, that's huge, isn't it? You want to live? Lose your life for His sake. You want to lose your life? Hold on to it. Hold on to your life. Live it up. Live it the way you want to live it without Him and His will in your life. Not serving Him. And you'll lose your life. But if you lose your life for His sake, you will get it. Life. How many of y'all want to live? See, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that are living, but they're not alive. They're living and say, we're living. We can tell you how to live. Just live it up. Have a good time. They're living, but they're not alive. Because the only way to be alive is to lose your life. To be devoted to Him. To serve Him. Praise God. Give the Lord worship. You want to see me? It's going to require devotion from you. You want to have eternal life? You're going to have to lose your life to get it. There's nothing easy about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Some people say salvation doesn't cost anything. I'll tell you this. It did cost something. It cost Jesus His life. And it'll also cost you your life. It'll cost me my life. He requires a devoted life if you want eternal life. If you do not serve Him, if you're not devoted to Him, you will not go to heaven. You will die and go to hell. That's what the Bible says. How many want life? He that hateth his life of this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father Honor. You want to serve him? You got to follow him. It's required. Devotion is required. And if you serve Jesus, the Father will honor you. In verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Why is it trouble? 
not be just because of the physical suffering and pain he's going to go through on that cross, but his soul is troubled because he's going to be the sin bearer. The one who never knew sin is going to have the sins of the world placed on him. And he's going to feel the separation that sin brings. His soul is troubled. Not just because of the physical death, but because of what he's about to experience as the sin bearer. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this he said, this is the reason why I'm here. He said, I was born to die. That's the reason why I came. To fulfill this hour of death, burial, resurrection, ascension. That's why I came. Watch this. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Father, glorify thy name. And when he prays that prayer, this voice out of heaven I have glorified it and I'll glorify it again. I will glorify it again. When did he glorify it? When Jesus was baptized in water, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. For all to hear that were there that day. When did he glorify it? The first time at his baptism. And he glorified his name through all the miracles that Jesus did. Every miracle in John, all seven of them, God was glorifying his name through those miracles. And the Father says, and I will glorify it. When you go and die on that cross as a man, God come in the flesh, yes, but when you die on that cross as a man and you're buried and you rise again the third day and you ascend up to sit on the right hand of God, I will glorify at that time. Verse 29. How do the people respond? How do they hear this voice from heaven? The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. They just heard this voice from heaven. Now Jesus is the Father, but He never gave up His omnipresence. God is omnipresent. All of God was not in Him. But He was God. And in His omnipresence, He spoke outside of His body. Said, I have glorified it, I'll glorify it again. That's what the voice said. But the people, when they heard the voice, said, some of them said, that's thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. You see, they could only hear depending on where they were. 
And the only thing they had ever heard from heaven is thunder or the voice of God in angel form. And when they heard this voice, see what I'm trying to show you is that they failed. When the voice of God went forth, some said that's thunder, others said that's an angel. They didn't hear what God was saying. All they said was that's thunder, that's the voice of an angel. They failed in hearing God. See, every one of you come to church tonight and you're going to hear the word of God preached. And some of you are going to hear it. It's just thunder to you. You're going to leave here and, and maybe some of you, you won't understand a word I preached. Because to you, it was just thunder. And depending on where you are, who are the God going for to you, say, well, sound like an angel. Depending on where you are tonight, when you leave this place, will you fail in hearing God's word to you? Will it just be like noise to you? Will it just be like thunder to you that doesn't make sense to you? They failed that day when the word came forth to hear God speaking. To them it was just noise. And the many of you, when you come to church, all it is when I'm preaching to you, it's just noise. It just sounds like thunder. But you can't hear God talking to you. God have mercy on your soul. That's a failure on your part. If you can't hear God's word when it's preached to you, all it is is a bunch of noise or thunder to you. It doesn't make sense to you. It's not clear to you. God have mercy on you. I just know if it came from up there, there's got to be thunder. I know angels are up there, so we don't know that was God talking. We didn't, we didn't hear what he said. Many of them, they just heard noise. He said, well, it must be an angel because, you know, we know angels are up there. Yeah, it definitely wasn't a B-1 bomber. It wasn't, it wasn't a jet breaking the sound barrier. They didn't have jets breaking the sound barrier. The only thing you ever heard up there was either God was talking, you know, thunder or an angel, you know, but they couldn't hear what God was saying because it was nothing but noise to them. Some, because of where they were, at least had an understanding that angels were up there. So maybe an angel's talking to them. Because of where they were. And the same thing for you today, for me as well. What am I hearing? Is it just noise? Is it just thunder? Or do I hear what God is saying? I will tell you though this. That in the Word of God, when you have thunder, it is pointing to Calvary. It's pointing to the finished work of Jesus. When the stone was rolled away from the tent, from the sepulcher, there was thunder. You go through the Word of God, 
and you see in connection to his death, burial, and resurrection, you will see thunder. What is God saying here? He had clarity in his voice. To them it sounded like thunder. Well, I can tell you, they're failure. But from God's perspective, he is emphasizing the finished work of Calvary. So that when you get in the book of Revelation and around the throne you hear there's lightning and thundering around the throne. Lightning and thunder. And the Bible talks about an earthquake. When you get in that most holy place in the book of Revelation and Jesus is sitting on the throne and you've got thunder and lightning and an earthquake. The most holy place, the throne room of Jesus Christ is declaring the finished work over and over and over. Because thunder is the message of the finished work. Lightning is the movement of the finished work. And the earthquake is a manifestation of the finished work. And when you get a revelation of the finished work of Jesus Christ in your life, it'll be a, it'll be like thunder going off on you. When you get a revelation of the finished work of Calvary inside of you, there'll be a movement like lightning in you. When you get a revelation of the finished work on the inside of you, it'll be like an earthquake, a manifestation going off in you. So thunder and lightning and an earthquake is the message and the movement and the manifestation of the finished work. But it's not just talking about what's going on up in the heavens. It's talking about what God will release in you when you get a revelation of why He died, why He rose from the dead. See... All of you here today can talk about it. You can say, yes, I believe that Jesus died and rose again the third day. But do you have a revelation of that inside of you? If you've got a revelation of Jesus Christ on the inside of you, that message is thunder and lightning and an earthquake. And the more revelation of Jesus Christ that you have, the more revelation that you have of His finished work, it's more than just having factual knowledge, but it's a revelation of Jesus that you need. And all of a sudden, there will be thundering and lightning and a mighty earthquake taking place in you. And when that earthquake takes place inside of you, it will shake in your life everything that is hiding him from your sight. He's telling them, you can't see me if I stay in this condition. But if I die and rise again from the dead and you get a revelation, you have a sight of Jesus. It is because of the finished work. And when you get that revelation of Jesus, when you really see Him as He is, and you understand why He died for you, that it's not just religion for you. You've got a revelation 
of Jesus. And there's sight given to you of Jesus. And the more you die, the more revelation you get. The more you see, the more you understand. It was when John went to the Isle of Patmos, the place of his killing, that he got a revelation of Jesus. He had sight. But not until he was in a place of dying. And that's what Jesus wants you to see today. He he wants you to see him by way of revelation. So the thunder here is connected to his finished work. And when you get a revelation of Jesus this way, the finished work, a revelation of his person, a revelation of his work, when you get that revelation, all of a sudden, that manifestation of an earthquake is going to go off in you. When you get a revelation of Jesus, when you have sight of Jesus and an unveiling of Jesus, there's going to be a lightning that takes place in you. Movement! There's going to be a thunder that takes place inside of you because you have a revelation, a sight of Jesus. He's been unveiled. So that the book of Revelation is not to reveal you to you the Antichrist. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ and His finished work. His finished work has to remove the Antichrist out of you. There has to be the sounding of trumpets. A clear sounding voice that goes forth to you. That removes everything and anything that hinders His appearing in you and in the church. He wants to be seen. He wants to be revealed in and through you. But there are things that are blocking His appearance. And so he's fixing to say, now is the prince of this world cast out. You want to see it. The focus of the book of Revelation is the finished work of Calvary. And so now, Jesus answered, Do you have Thunder in you tonight. Do you have lightning moving in you tonight? Do you have an earthquake going off in you tonight? A manifestation? He wants to be seen in you, the church. That's why he's standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's the light of the church. And He's revealing Himself in and through you, the body. But He can't reveal Himself until some things are removed out of your life and mine. There has to be a losing of your life. And then you will receive it. You'll have a revelation. You'll receive it. I pray tonight what I'm preaching to you. If you ever get a revelation of what I'm preaching to you, it will change you forever. Because it will not just be an outward religious system. It will not just be coming to church and sitting on your pew. It will be thunder and lightning and earthquake. (laughs) 
That's why he said to the Greeks, you really want to see me? The only way you can is by the finished work of the cross. Therefore, the people, the people, therefore, verse 29, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. <coughs> Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. The Spirit of God, which is omnipresent, which dwells in the tabernacle of Jesus Christ, but not limited by His body, is honoring the Son. The Spirit is honoring the Son. But He says, this voice was not for me. He said it was for you. He's honored by the spirits. The Bible goes on. Verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Look at that. He said, right now is the judgment of this world. How about his future? He said, now is the judgment of the cosmos. Now is the judgment of the ordered system of this world that is in opposition to God. It's not, he's not talking about the terraformer you're standing on. He's talking about the system that is in opposition against God Almighty. He said, now is the judgment of this cosmos. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He's letting them know that by his death on the cross, Satan will be defeated by his death on the cross Satan will be judged so that his work on Calvary is declaring to you the defeat of the prince of this world he said now is the prince of this world cast out and something you have to realize is that it is a finished work but in the end times when Jesus begins to work the things of the book of Revelation and remove everything that hinders His appearing. When He begins to operate in the book of Revelation. Are y'all here with me now? This will bring the finality of the finished work. Did you catch what I said? The finality of the finished work. So now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. But it's not finality yet. The sentence has been passed. But the execution hasn't been fulfilled on Satan. When Jesus died on that cross, He defeated Satan forever, once and for all. But Satan is still roaming the planet and deceiving the nations. And so there are stages. The sentence has been passed. In Revelation chapter 12, he'll be cast out, Satan will be cast out of heaven to the earth. 
in the middle of the tribulation period. He will be limited to the planets. And he will go forth bringing havoc to this earth. Revelation 12, he's cast out of heaven to the earth. Here he says he's cast out. Revelation 12 says he's cast out of heaven in the midpoint of the tribulation period. And then, progressively, he'll be cast into a pit for a thousand years. And then after that, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. So this casting out of Satan, the prince of this world, the sentence was declared, Jesus' death on the cross, that he is defeated. But ultimately, in finality, there is a progression from heaven to the earth, from the earth to the pit, from the pit to the lake of fire. But that is where he's going. And it is the finished work that destroys and defeats the devil, the prince of this cosmos, the ruler of this world that opposes the true king. The Bible tells us, hallelujah, I feel the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Verse 32, I and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, they take me and they, look at this, he's telling me he's going to die. He said, I and if I be lifted up from the earth, this is how he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, lifted up from the earth, suspended between heaven and earth. He said, I'll draw all unto me. I lift him up on the cross before he can draw all men unto him. You've got to lift him up in your place. And when you lift him up, when you lift him up and you glorify him in your worship, he begins to draw people to himself. <coughs> Now and I be lifted up from the earth. He's going to die on a cross. They're going to put him in the ground. He's coming out of the ground. He's going to go through death and come up on the other side. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Let me tell you something. I can preach the word of God to you, but I can't draw you to him. I can preach the word of God to you, but I can't save you. I can preach the word of God to you. I can preach the finished work. I can preach that he died for you on the cross. But he's the only one that can draw you. Amen. Are y'all here with me right now? <clears throat> yeah. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him. Now look at the response of the people. The people answered him. We've heard out of the law that Christ abided forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You're telling us that you're going to die? And we've read in the Scripture how the Bible said the Son of Man abideth forever. We read in Psalm 110, we've read prophecies throughout the Old Testament that let us know the eternal reign of the Messiah. Who is the Son of Man? That's going to die. When we read the scriptures, and the scriptures clearly tell us he abides forever. And they were right. There's scriptures in that Old Testament that declare Messiah would rule forever, abide forever. 
Then how can he die, they said. Here's the problem. They only took the scripture that they wanted. And they failed to read Isaiah 53 that talked about the Messiah. See, one, Psalm 110 said he would abide forever. But they, they failed to remember Isaiah 53 said that he would die. They failed to remember Daniel chapter 9 that said Messiah would, be, would come and that he would be cut off. Not for himself. It was in the scripture. But you see, they only wanted to take the parts of the Bible they wanted to believe and use them to condemn him. And that's the way the church world is today. They only want to take parts of the Word of God that they want to believe in and reject the others. That's why, now listen to me, I'm being honest with you. That's why there's not more people in Pentecost tonight. Is because they only want to take a part of the Word of God that they want to believe and reject the others. They failed to quote Isaiah 53. They failed to quote the other prophecies that talked about his suffering and death. They only quoted the ones that said, Well, he dies forever, so how is it? Who is this son of mine that's going to come? He's going to die. Y'all with me now? Have you ever been like that? Take only the part of the Word of God that you wanted to believe in, threw the rest of it away? For whatever reason, <clears throat> that was them that day. People answered him, We've heard out of the law that Christ abided forever in Messiah. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? <clears throat> then Jesus said unto them, Look at this, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus in departing, and did hide himself from you. He's letting them know, unless they come to an understanding of their own blindness, except they understand they're blind, and except they come to Him and say, I'm blind, they will continue to walk in darkness because He is the light. He is the light of the world. If they will come to Him and say, I'm blind, then they can see. He's letting them know the light of the world. He, that's Him. He's with them for a little bit longer and they're going to crucify Him on the cross. But they'll just recognize how blind they are. He's the light that'll give them sight. He's going back to that scripture we talked about when He healed the blind man that couldn't see. If you'll just believe and say, I'm blind like that blind man, then I can give you light. But until you're willing to say, I'm blind, He can't give you light. You'll never see. You keep believing that you see and you're blind. You're going to stay blind. 
You're only taking the parts of the Word of God that you want to believe. You're not taking the whole Word of God. After he makes that statement to them, while you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. How many of y'all want it? <coughs> These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. Hide? He's hiding himself from them. I don't read where one of them mourns. I don't read where one of them cries. The light of the world turned and walked away from them and he went and hid himself from them not to be seen by them and I don't read where one person started crying about his departure. This is the last time they will see him this way ever again. The next time they see him, they will see him suffering in death. They will never see him this way. He goes and hides himself. Why is he hiding himself? Because he knows that they have rejected the light. They have rejected him. He offered himself genuinely to them as their king, Messiah, Savior. But they refused to believe. Believers. They rejected it. So he hides himself from them. And all these years since Calvary, he's been hid from the eyes of the nation of Israel. Only a few here and there get a revelation of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And come to him. One of the signs of the last days. And that Jesus is about to take out from the Gentiles. A predetermined number. Is the coming in of Jews. Into the church. Because in this age. Blindness. Has fallen upon Israel. So that the Gentiles would be coming in. The Greeks would say we would see Jesus. And so the more Jews you see coming to the kingdom of God in the last days, it is a prophetic sign to you that the predetermined numbers of the Gentiles are fixing to be taken out of this earth. Give God praise in the house. Everybody's talking about May 22nd, I believe. 21st, 22nd. I don't even know. I don't even keep up with it. Jesus is coming the end of the world, May the 22nd. If that's the case, this is the last time I'll ever see you. Because the 22nd is Sunday. And Lord willing, I'm not going to be here. So I won't even see you. The rapture's going to take place May 22nd. I'll see you in heaven. I'll see you again. It is not going to be the end of the world, May the 22nd. Oh, 
Oh, see, some of y'all are really thinking right now, man. Really? Talk to me some more about this May 22nd thing, Pat, will you? Yeah, yeah, you've heard this guy claiming that May the 22nd is going to be the time that the church is raptured out and the end of the world, right? The 21st, uh, whatever, I don't know. 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 25th, whatever you want. I'll see you in this life again. I guarantee you it's not the end of the world. Praise the Lord. Now, if I'm wrong and you're right with God, you don't have anything to worry about. If I'm wrong. But I guarantee you. But if I'm wrong. Pastor, wouldn't you want to be here with us when the rapture and the end of the world comes May 21st, 27? Not really. Is it? Just be honest with you. I'm just telling you, I don't believe it. He went and hid himself. He's been hid for their, for their eyes, from their eyes, for almost 2,000 years. There's a veil over their eyes, there's a veil over their hearts. Why is there a veil on the eyes of the nation of Israel? The Gentiles coming in. Why? He's fixing to explain. Are y'all with me so far? For though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. <clears throat> Why? The Spirit of God has already honored him. I've glorified thee and I'll glorify thee again. The Spirit of God is honoring him. The voice. Now the prophets honor him. Why do they not believe that the sand of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah the prophet, said they wouldn't? It was prophesied 700 years before he came. They will not believe when he comes. Their own people, his own people, will not believe in him when he comes. Isaiah said it. The sand of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. Why didn't they believe? The prophets said they wouldn't believe. I know you're bored tonight, but but then he says, Isaiah said they could not believe. Could not If they could not believe, then why did he present himself to them publicly if they could not believe? The prophet said they would not believe. 
They said they could not believe. You know why they could not believe? Because first they did not believe. Listen to what I'm telling you. See, he legitimately, legitimately presented himself as king to them. Right? But they did not believe in him. So because they would not believe, they got to a place where they could not believe. You hear what I'm telling you? Because they would not, they could not. Here's the here's the deal. Here's what you gotta catch. Here's what you gotta catch. Is that when you come and you hear the word of God, the more you reject it, the more you refuse the word of God. The more you would not put you in a dangerous position of getting to a place where you cannot. That's why it's dangerous when you come to the house of God and you hear the word of God and you reject it. Because the more you reject it, you are putting yourself in a place later on where you can't believe, you couldn't believe, because you wouldn't believe. And so when he came and presented himself legitimately to Israel as the king of Israel, they didn't believe. And because they wouldn't believe, they couldn't believe. He wanted to gather them like a mother hen gathered the chicks under her wings. But he said, but you would not. And because they would not, they got to a place where they could not. And she would say, well, I believe Jesus can save anybody to the very end. That's not true. Just to make a blanket statement like that, Jesus can save anybody to the very end. It's not true. There are boundaries to His grace. And if you keep rejecting Him and saying no to Him, and you refuse Him, and you reject the gospel, and you would not, there will come a time, there will come a time in your life where you can't. Not because He wouldn't. He can do anything. But there will come a time when God will be God. And although He would want to save you, He couldn't save you because of you. You. You're the problem. Not God. God will be God. Not your pastor. Not a brother in the church. Nobody man. No man. God will be God. And only God knows when you cross that line. And you keep saying no, no, no to Him. And you refuse Him. And you keep rejecting Him. And you keep backsliding. And you keep missing church. There's going to come a time. I don't know when it is. God will be God. But God will say, now you can't. You can't. That's why it's dangerous to quench the Holy Ghost. To resist the Spirit of God. To grieve the Spirit of God. Because gradually you will lose your ability to believe. That is the danger of being raised in church. 
That's the danger of being raised in the nation of Israel. Heard the word of God preached to them for thousands of years. Prophet after prophet after prophet came to them. And they kept closing their eyes and rejecting the word. And so now when Messiah comes, they can't even recognize him. God gave them the date. But they still missed him. God gave them the date and they still missed him. Jesus, God come in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah, Shiloh, is come. Four thousand years ago was prophesied in connection to their day. Six thousand in connection to ours. Five hundred years, Zechariah said he would come that way. Daniel 9 prophesied the day. He rode into Jerusalem the exact way the prophet said he would ride in. They gave him the portrait of the Messiah. And when he rode in, they didn't even recognize him. He's about to come. Again. At his revelation. Isn't it sad that he came to his own and his own received him? He was the glory of God tabernacled among men, John 1. But they received Him not. And so, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, when He came that way, tabernacled the glory, the Bible says, they didn't recognize Him. It was because of their continual rejection and unbelief. I talked to you today, if you could just shrug it off, make it no big deal. But you better cherish every word of God. You better cherish every move of God in your life. <laughs> you better cherish every coming of Jesus to you. Because the coming of the Lord to the church is not just future. The coming of the Lord is right now. If Jesus doesn't come and manifest Himself in our midst today, we're wasting our time. He has come. Do you see Him? Do you recognize Him? Do you believe? Hallelujah! Is there a revelation of Jesus in your life? In my life? In the church? Because the more you harden your hearts, the Bible says there's coming a time when God will harden your heart. He'll give you up to your own ways. And so the prophets prophesied it. The prophets honor him. Verse 39, Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, He that he had blinded, he had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. 
God saying the prophets revealed it, prophesied it before he came, that he would not be believed in. And he'd be rejected. And so because they would not, because they hardened their hearts and claimed to be able to see, they got to a place where God blinded them and God hardened their hearts. I tell you again, that's why it's dangerous to be raised in a church. In some ways, I as your pastor, in some ways I'm thankful to God that I wasn't raised in Pentecost. I've seen too many Pentecostals, too many people raised in Pentecost that are cold and indifferent to God. It's dangerous to sit under the Word of God and the moves of God that you experience and harden the hearts and not have impact you. Dangerous. Take it for granted. You're raised in it, man. You were born into it, some of you. Take it for granted. It's no big deal to you. But for those of us who were taken out of religion and realized there was more to what, more than what we had, we're like the Greeks that said we would see Jesus because we are not satisfied with our religion. To us, Pentecost. Is the greatest thing we've ever experienced. To us, this message that we preach is the greatest thing that we have ever heard. To Him, Jesus is the greatest one. It means something to some of us because we weren't raised in this. We were like Greeks that were unsatisfied by religion. And I don't know about you, but I, uh, by the grace of God, am not going to become a religious Pentecostal. I am not going to join your Pentecostal club. Now, I'll preach the truth. Hallelujah. I'm glad to be a Pentecostal. I'm glad to be an apostolic, but I'm not joining your dead Pentecostal club. You want to come and sit on a pew and you want to be, Pente you want to be Pentecost in name only? I don't want to be a part of your club. I'm not going to join your dead Pentecostal religion. Because Pentecost is not a religion. Pentecost is an experience. I'm not going to become a dead Pentecostal church. You sinner. No way in your life. By the grace of God, I've been at Pentecost for 30 years. But I thank God tonight the fire still burns. I thank God the light still shines. I thank God there's still a movement of the Holy Ghost in me. I am not going to become a dead religious Pentecostal. And some of you are already moving that way. You're content to sit dead on a church pew. You're content to call yourself Pentecost but not have the movement of Pentecost. The power of God. The revelation of this truth. Dangerous. And so... 
the condition of Israel. And Isaiah said it was going to happen. The prophets honor him. And then 41, I want you to see this. Not only did the prophets prophesy that they would not believe in him, and therefore he would harden their hearts and blind their eyes because they refused to see and refused to believe. Verse 41, he says, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. When did the prophecy come forth? Isaiah chapter 6. When he saw the Lord, or I should say it this way, when he saw the glory of the Lord and his train filled the temple. When Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 got a vision of the glory of the Lord <coughs> and he heard the seraphim crying, he's holy, 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 holy. His train filled the temple. Who was that that was on the throne? It was the Lord. Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spake of him. Who did he see? He saw the Lord. This is declaring that Jesus who is there on the earth is the same one that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne that Jesus is the throne setter. He is the throne setter. He is none less than God. He's the same God. The God of the Old Testament that Isaiah saw setting. The glory of the Lord sitting on the throne. He's that same God. So Isaiah testified that Jesus in His deity in His deity was the one on the throne. How are you going to get around that? You don't believe that Jesus was God coming in flesh? The prophet says right here. He said he saw his glory. Isaiah 6. The same one on the throne is the one who came in flesh. The same one on the throne who gave the prophecy to the prophets is the fulfillment of the prophecy given to the prophets. He knew before he came in time how they would respond to him. Because he's the eternal God. That's a dimension that you and I have a hard time understanding because we live in time. But God is not limited to time. He knows 700 years before he comes how they will respond in time. He tells them in advance. And the prophets stepped into eternity as they as if they walked through a door. And saw it. Did you catch that? Time is an amazing thing. But God is not limited to time. He called, Isaiah, come up here, look at this. Come on up here. I'm going to take you 700 years ahead in time and I'm going to show you how they're going to respond to the Messiah when he comes. The one that's on the throne. The throne setter. And so Isaiah walks through time into eternity and goes right into 700 years later and sees what's going to happen. He says, this is what's going to happen. 
Because I'm in the eternity. The eternity. In eternity, it's already done. It's already finished. I'm coming to a close. There, you know what? It's a beautiful thing. It's an awesome thing. Physicists will tell you today who study physics. They will tell you that if you had enough energy to push you, come on, to push you into time travel, if you had enough energy, in fact, I already told you, that when the astronauts go to the moon because the moon beats time, beats faster on the moon than it does here, when the astronauts go to the moon, to the moon in a sense, they're traveling into the future. Because time's faster there than it is here. Jupiter's slower than it is here. If it were possible, and it's not possible right now, for you to have the kind of energy to take you from this time dimension, you could travel into the future, and you could also travel back in time. Real, yeah, that's the truth. It's not spooky, that's real stuff. It is possible for you to go back in time to where you, if it were possible, if you had the energy to get there, you could go back in time and you could stand there and look at your mama before you before your mama ever had you. But right now we don't have that kind of energy or force to push you in those different time dimensions. God's not limited to time. He, anyway. So he can look at the prophets and he's got enough spirit in his spirit, man. Enough energy in the spirit. Isaiah, look! 700 years from now, this is what's going to happen. Go into the future, Isaiah. 700 years. And see it. John, on the Isle of Patmos, come up hither. I will show thee things which must shortly come to pass. He's caught up in the spirit. And all of a sudden, he's living in the future in a time that we're not even in yet. Whoa. This is the eternal God who was sitting on the throne, who gave the prophecy to Isaiah, and then he became the fulfillment of the prophecy when he clothed himself in flesh and walked among men. And he already knew what, how they were going to respond to him before he ever came. Say praise the Lord. Uh, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? I like stuff like that. Amen. He's a mighty God. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him, verse 42, nevertheless among the chief rulers also many believed on him. So now we're going to have not only the, the honor of the prophets and the honor of the Spirit of God, we're going to have the honor, the partial honor of some of the religious leaders. Partial honor. Partial, say partial honor. Sad. They were cowards. Cowards. Says, y'all getting tired? Yeah, I gotta get out of here. Mm. 
There was among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, did you catch that? The chief rulers. <clears throat> but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were cowards. Partial honor, but secret disciples. They wouldn't publicly confess him because they were afraid of men. They were men pleasers. Secret disciples. Nicodemus was like that for a while. I don't want to be a secret disciple. <clears throat> Verse 44. And God's grace looks like I'm going to finish it. Jesus had cried. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on thee, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Do you believe what he just said? He just declared that he is the Father. He just made a statement that he is the incarnation of God. Wow. And because they refused to believe in Jesus, they were rejecting God. They were rejecting the Father. He is God in human flesh. None less than God. Verse 46, I am come, a light into the world. Whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. All you got to do is admit that you're blind. And then you can see. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. We already said that the world, now is the world. Now is this world judged. And now is the prince of this world cast out. He's talking about the final judgment. The first time he came, he came to save the world. The next time he comes in a triumphal entry, he's coming to judge this world. The first time he came, he didn't come. They said at the great white throne judgment. But he will. There's coming a time. There is a last day coming. The last day is coming. There is a judgment that's going to come. He will sit upon the great white throne. Jesus Christ. And He's going to judge the world. But the first time He came, He came to save it. The Bible says, look at it. Verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my what? Words. Hath one that judgeth him. See, when you reject the Word of God, you're rejecting Him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. There is a last day coming. There is a judgment coming. And every one of us, including your pastor, is going to stand before God someday. Every one of us. We're going to be judged by his word. Praise the Lord. Oh, Caleb's helping me preach tonight. 
for I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, who gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I So that day he came, he presented himself, and publicly gave them the opportunity to receive and believe, and they didn't. And so because they rejected him, he rejects them. And he will go to the cross and he will die. Hides himself. Chapter 13 through 17. We're moving closer to the cross. And in those chapters, he is going to spend them only with his disciples. 13 through 17. And the next time, they will see him as a whole, nation as a whole, is when they lift him up on the cross. And crucify him. But that's why he came. And the prophets foretold it. And he explained why. He told them why. And because he did, you and I can be saved. Would you stand? Father, I thank you today for your word.